We want to welcome you to the Bible teaching ministry of Fellowship Bible Church, where our desire is to honor God by faithful obedience to His Word. If you want to understand the Bible better, please continue to listen as Pastor Matt Postiff explains and applies the biblical text one verse at a time. You can reach us with questions or for more teaching audio and print material at our website, fbcaa.org. You can also watch our services live at fbcaa.org slash live. We want to thank you for listening and pray that you will be edified. Join us now as Pastor Postiff opens God's Word. Well, let's turn our Bibles, if you would please, to Second um, Chronicles 19. I have a short chapter here to read to continue on our path of reading the Scriptures together. Second Chronicles 19, I invite you, yea, urge you to turn your Bibles there. God wrote these words for our prophet. I don't know what prophet they may have for you in them tonight, but they will have some prophet if you apply your heart to the Word of God. And uh, now that I'm just reviewing what I've read uh, yesterday or the day before in preparation for this, I know there's profit here. It's just if you'll take it or not, if you'll take it or not. It says in chapter 19 of Second Chronicles, Then Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, returned safely to his house in Jerusalem. So you remember the background story from the previous chapter that he went out to war very foolishly with his northern counterpart uh, with whom he had allied himself in marriage. And it says, And Jehu, the son of Hanani, the seer, went out to meet him and said to King Jehoshaphat, Should you help the wicked and love those who hate the Lord? So that's what he did, right? He loved those and helped the wicked, helped Ahab, uh, who hates the Lord. Therefore, the wrath of the Lord is upon you. Nevertheless, good things are found in you, and you have, in that you have removed the wooden images from the land and have prepared your heart to seek God. You know, what an admixture, isn't it, of good and evil in one person's life? And so we struggle with the bad things in our lives and trust God will help us to become better human beings, better represent, representatives of God. Verse 4, So Jehoshaphat dwelt at Jerusalem, and he went out again among the people from Beersheba to the mountains of Ephraim and brought them back to the Lord God of their fathers. I can say a hearty amen to this. Then he set judges in the land throughout all the fortified cities of Judah, city by city, and said to the judges, Take heed to what you are doing, for you do not judge for man but for the Lord who is with you in the judgment. Would to God that we had judges who had that feeling about themselves today. Wouldn't you say, brother? They're judging for the Lord. God is watching their judgment. Now verse 7 says, Now therefore, let the fear of the Lord be upon you, and take care and do it. For there is no iniquity with the Lord our God, no partiality, nor taking of bribes. Can you imagine bribing God? (laughs) You can't bribe somebody who owns everything. Verse 8, Moreover in Jerusalem, for the judgment of the Lord and for controversies, Jehoshaphat appointed some of the Levites and priests and some of the chief fathers of Israel when they returned to Jerusalem. And he commanded them, saying, Thus you shall act in the fear of the Lord, faithfully and with a loyal heart. Whatever case comes to you from your brethren who dwell in the cities, whether of bloodshed or offenses against law or commandment, against statutes or ordinances, you shall warn them, lest they trespass against the Lord, and wrath come upon you and your brethren. Do this, and you will not be guilty. 
And take notice, Amariah the chief priest is over you in all matters of the Lord, and Zebediah the son of Ishmael, the ruler of the house of Judah, for all the king's matters. Also the Levites will be officials before you. Behave courageously, and the Lord will be with the good. Wow, the Lord will be with the good. How about that? Wonderful message from God's Word. Just a short 11 verses there. Well, now we're going to turn later in our Old Testament, if you would, make your way carefully and slowly to Nahum. Okay, if you can find that on the first try, opening your Bible, you'll be famous. Nahum. (laughs) Jonah, remember Jonah? You found Jonah recently, so find Jonah, Micah, Nahum. And then if you're at Habakkuk, you're too far. Nahum. We'll read some more here. I thought this would be a fitting conclusion to our study of Jonah. I'm sure I could say a little bit more about Jonah, but I think we've done enough to get the idea of the message of the book, that it's not just a story about a man, a fanciful story about a man who was swallowed by a whale. Uh, you know, come and listen to my fearful tale of the ocean blue, how a man got swallowed by a whale. Um, It's more than that. It's about the sovereignty of God over his creation and his care, even over those who seem to be as perverse as could be. The Ninevites were that, as obstinate against the things of God, as cruel, as hard-hearted, and yet God had some measure of concern for them. He takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked, And he provides a way for them to escape that default destination that all humans have apart from God's salvation. Remember that now. We we teach that God rescues people out of the condition in which we all find ourselves and chooses to grace some of them with salvation, thus lifting them out of the uh, mass of humanity that is all of us were and The broad way is leading to destruction. That's just the way that it goes, and so he saves some out of that. I don't believe that there's an active, uh, what's the word, an active, um, oh, come on, why can't I think of it, reprobation, a uh, dual decree, some for salvation, and an active sending people to uh, Hades, although that's what ends up happening, but... I think this best aligns with the, the design that we see of God from the scriptures that he does not take pleasure in the death of the wicked. He's prepared them for, the, uh, uh, for his purposes, certainly, but uh, I don't take a double predestination. That's the word I was looking for, double predestination or uh, reprobation, rather a preterition, a passing over of those who um, are lost and refuse the grace of God. What a tragedy that is. Book of Nahum, the burden against Nineveh, the book of the vision of Nahum the Elkoshite. God is jealous and the Lord avenges. The Lord avenges and is furious. The Lord will take vengeance on his adversaries and he reserves wrath for his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power and will not at all acquit the wicked. The Lord has his way in the whirlwind and in the storm and the, in, uh, sorry, and the clouds are the dust of his feet. 
He rebukes the sea and makes it dry and dries up all the rivers. Bashan and Carmel wither and the flower of Lebanon wilts. The mountains quake before him. The hills melt and the earth heaves at his presence. Yes, the world and all who dwell in it. Who can stand before his indignation? And who can endure the fierceness of his anger? His fury is poured out like fire and the rocks are thrown down by him. The Lord is good a stronghold in the day of trouble, and he knows those who trust in him. But with an overflowing flood, he will make an utter end of its place, and darkness will pursue his enemies. I wonder if Jonah would have liked to give this message. Yeah, remember that? Jonah wanted doom and destruction to come to the nation of Nineveh. But it wasn't time for that when Jonah went. It was time for a message of judgment to elicit a response of repentance so that God could give them mercy. Now, however, is a different story. Verse 9, what do you conspire against the Lord? He will make another utter end of it. Affliction will not rise up a second time. For while tangled like thorns and while drunken like drunkards, they shall be devoured like stubble fully dried. From you comes forth one who plots evil against the Lord, a wicked counselor. Thus says the Lord, though they are safe and likewise many. You see, this is what Nineveh thought of themselves as. They're safe and there are many. There's safety in numbers, right? Everybody's doing it. Yet in this manner, they will be cut down when he passes through. Though I have afflicted you, I will afflict you no more. For now, I will break off his yoke from you and burst your bonds apart. The Lord has given a command concerning you. Your name shall be perpetuated no longer. Out of the house of your gods, I will cut off the carved image and the molded image. I will dig your grave Listen to this, for you are vile. Behold on the mountains the feet of him who brings good tidings, who proclaims peace. O Judah, keep your appointed feasts, perform your vows, for the wicked one shall no more pass through you. He is utterly cut off. The book of Nahum is addressed to Nineveh and also to the entire Assyrian Empire, of which Nineveh was the capital city. And you can see that from the very first words. These are the controlling words for the whole book, okay? So it makes it easy for us. The burden against Nineveh. Everything here has to relate to Nineveh or to Nineveh's affliction of Judah and the people of Israel. Now, according to that highly reliable encyclopedia online that you know, Nineveh was an ancient Mesopotamian city on the eastern bank of the Tigris River, the capital of the Neo-Assyrian Empire. So when we say Assyria, we're talking about the Neo-Assyrian Empire. It was the largest city in the world for some 50 years until uh, after a bitter period of civil war in Assyria itself, it was sacked by an unusual coalition of former subject peoples, including these, the Babylonians, the Medes, the Persians, the Armenians, the Chaldeans, the Scythians, and the Sumerians in 612 B.C. Its ruins are across the river from modern day, the modern-day major city of Mosul. You ever heard of Mosul before? Of course, in the Nineveh governorate of Iraq. Now, that's from a few years ago, that note, so maybe it's been edited now. That's the trouble with an encyclopedia that's open to edits. It changes, and then your quotes may not actually be found there again, except in the history. But in any case, uh, Jonah was the background of this book. He's another prophet who was told to bring a message to Nineveh at an earlier time. Jonah was written in the early half of the 8th century B.C., 
sometimes say around 760 B.C. Nahum wrote about 100 years later, okay? 100 years later, and that judgment he wrote is imminent for Nineveh. Apparently, their repentance didn't last. Unfortunately, their repentance didn't last. You know, a lot happens in 100 years. Imagine, you know, imagine uh, great awakenings in the United States in the 1700s and Imagine a great awakening having happened in, in 1922 if such a thing had happened. I'm not saying it did, but imagine that, 1922. What has happened in the intervening 100 years? Yeah. yeah, a lot of change. The nation is a different nation. The population is almost entirely different. Those who are still around from 1922 are largely irrelevant because nobody listens to them. They're so old, they're all in nursing homes or whatever. Um, or they were too young to even know what 1922 was like when uh, it happened and uh, came of age during the war and stuff like that. But uh, the repentance did not last more than a portion of the intervening century between the dates of writing of Nahum and, and Jonah before him. So the date of Nahum can be located between 663 and 612. If you look at chapter 3, verse 8, it says, are you better than no Ammon that was situated by the river? Or this is Thebes, Thebes, the city uh, in Egypt. And um, we know that that was uh, destroyed in 663 B.C. We have a good mark on that historically. So uh, it, that was the fall of Thebes in Egypt to the Assyrians themselves in chapter 3, verse 8. And this is used as an example by Nahum you know, saying to them, are you better than that? Well, they think they're better than that, but in the end they're going to be shown that they're not better than that. So this had to occur before Nahum wrote, so he must have written after 663, but it had to happen in writing before 612. Why 612? Because Nineveh was sacked during that time and Assyria came to the end of its reign of dominance and terror over the Middle East region where it was. So this would put Nahum's writing during Manasseh, uh, Ammon, or Josiah. Manasseh was a long-reigning king, most likely during his time. Um, I think it was written earlier toward the 663, more so than the 612, because here's why. Nineveh is demonstrating that it still has some strength left in it. So it's not like in the, its last death throes on its deathbed, so to speak, it's got, you know, a good amount of strength, a good amount of confidence, you know, like they're safe and likewise many, uh, they think they're, you know, good stuff. Uh, so probably earlier in that time period. Um, but it was being eclipsed uh, in the 7th century by the Babylonians under Nabopolassar and the king that followed Nabopolassar, a very famous king named Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar, very well known. We know him from Daniel and from elsewhere. Later in the century, we find a weaker and weaker Assyrian power. Uh, the last great ruler was Ashurbanipal in 627, the grandson of Sennacherib. Sennacherib. Uh, so probably uh, 650 B.C. would be a good date for purposes of our study, somewhere in there. Um, what are other events that occurred around this time? I just say these to kind of locate you in world history. A bit later than this, 605, Nebuchadnezzar conquered Jerusalem and carried away captive one Daniel, 
and his uh, compatriots. Uh, shortly thereafter, an, an unbiblical or extra-biblical, I should say, extra-biblical events, Buddha taught in India, and Confucius in China, and the Greek city-states were flourishing around this time. So those of you that are world history buffs, you'll get that all located in your mind. Personally, Nahum, his name means comfort or consolation. In fact, I'm just thinking now the verb uh, that uses the same three roots, N-H-M, Naham, to comfort. Uh, it's a short form of the name Nehemiah. So this is a shortened Nehemiah. It's not the same person, of course, but it's just a shortened form of that name. The message is, of course, no comfort to Nineveh, obviously, but it would be of comfort to whom? Well, behold on the mountains the feet of him who brings good tidings. It would be a comfort to Judah and the kingdom, in the, uh, the southern Israel kingdom, because their enemies would finally be dispatched, those who had troubled them for so long. Now, it says in the beginning of chapter 1 that uh, Nahum is an Elkoshite, an Elkoshite, which probably refers to his geographical origin. And I just have to say, we don't know where this is. Scholars that I have read don't know where this is. There are several traditions. Maybe uh, northern um, Iraq in Mosul, near, or north of Mosul there, there was a village with a similar-sounding name. Uh, somewhere beyond the Jordan, another possibility is somewhere around Galilee. Galilee is attractive because there was a village there, and the village was called Capernaum, Capernaum, maybe the hometown, the village of Nahum. Don't know for sure. Arriving at a precise identification doesn't really matter for our purposes. The, the focus in the prophets is really never on the prophet, is it? It's on the message or the burden or the vision from the Lord that they have. Uh, do you remember when Nineveh was first mentioned in the Bible? And under whose... Uh, hand it was started? Genesis 10 tells us that Nimrod started the cities of Babylon and Nineveh. It was on the Tigris River. During the time of Jonah, Nineveh, we remember, had a, it was a city with 120,000 residents. Now, we don't know if those were just the children plus, the, plus adults extra or if that was the whole amount. I, I lean toward the young people uh, interpretation there, as you know from our study in Jonah. But nonetheless, it was a very large and important city. Uh, it makes me wonder, how could they support such a city in, an, in the ancient times like that? You know, the, well, if it was the center of, of the Assyrian Empire, actually wasn't the capital initially, but it was made the capital. It was an important city nonetheless. You think of the spoils and the things from war that would come in to support the the city and why they would have to expand uh, because they didn't operate a kind of economy like what we have. The people of Nineveh, Nineveh were worshipers of the fish goddess Nanshi and also of a fish god named Dagon. Remember that? He was what I call the man mermaid, part fish, part man. I don't know if that's a technical term, but that's what I have made up in my notes. So you understand from that description what it looked like. The city itself was seemingly unassailable with great walls and a moat 
One source indicates that the wall went around the central part of the city was seven and a half miles long. In some places, the wall was 148 feet, like deep or wide. You can't imagine that. I mean, you could build structures on this wall and in the wall. There were 15 gates through the wall providing passage into and out of the city. The moat is reported to have been 150 feet wide and 60 feet deep. And I don't know if it had crocodiles in it, okay? <laughs> so uh, evidently, in February of 2015, ISIS terrorists blew up some of the ancient walls which remained there after 2,700 years. Remember, they were going on a campaign of destroying prior cultural uh, and historical sites because the idea is we have to wipe out that history so that we can rewrite it the way that we want it to be. Um, from 740 to 722, the Assyrian, uh, Assyrians under the rulers Sargon II and Shalmaneser destroyed the northern kingdom of Israel and deported many of its survivors. 100 years later, 110 years later, God returned the favor upon them, didn't he? In 701, Sennacherib invaded Judah but was unable to defeat the southern kingdom. Remember what happened to his army? Hezekiah, Isaiah 36, 37, that portion. 185,000 soldiers in his army were killed by a plague of some sort, and uh, his army was decimated. He recovered somewhat after the huge loss of his army, but by the time of the writing of Nahum, that, that was true, but not before Sennacherib was assassinated and his son Esarhaddon reigned in his place. And following him then was Ashurbanipal, who was the last of the great leaders of the Assyrian Empire. God promised the destruction of the city and its empire and many passages in Scripture, Isaiah 30, Zephaniah 2, Zechariah 10, Ezekiel 32. And, uh, you know, this seemed impossible. I mean, you look at the edifice of this city and you think, who can destroy this place? Imagine what it must have been like to receive a message from one of the Hebrew prophets that you were going to be destroyed. I suppose Ashurbanipal may have considered it boastful talk, but perhaps it gave him some pause like it did his predecessor who declared a fast and put on sackcloth and ashes and told his people to repent. Um, there's an interesting story that you can read and there's different ways that it's explained or different accounts of how the city was overrun. But it had to do with the Tigris River overflowing its banks, flooding through the channels, undermining part of the foundation of the palace and the city walls and causing the wall to fall down and allowing the invaders to come in and take over the city. And from that time in 612, the city lay in ruins undiscovered by modern scholarship until 1842. That's a long time. It tells you the destruction that when God says something is going to be destroyed, he means it's going to be destroyed. Well, the major character in the book of Nahum is not Nahum, it's not Nineveh, it's not any of Nineveh's kings. The major character is God. And uh, we look at just a few characteristics of God, and then we'll have to stop for tonight, characteristics that are listed here in the book. It says in verse 2, God is jealous and the Lord avenges. God is jealous and the Lord avenges. God is, when it says jealous, 
it's so easy for us to say, man, that's a bad character trait. Uh, it, you know, God is some, some maniac, some jealous you know, control freak or something like that. It's even blasphemous to even say such things, but I know those things have been said of God. What it means is that God is earnestly committed to a cause. God is jealous for holiness. He's earnestly committed to the cause of holiness. God is jealous for his people. Understand that? He's earnestly committed to your cause if you're his child. Um, God is jealous for his name's sake. He wants his name not to be defamed among the nations. The cause is his own righteousness. The worship that he is due is over against that given to idols and his people. Now you'd say, well, why does he care about worship given to idols? Well, for one thing, it's wrong. Idols are nothing. But for another thing, it is harmful to the idol worshipers to be worshiping idols. You say, why is that? Well, if you're appointed unto, to die once and then the judgment, and you're worshiping an idol, what's going to happen to you in that judgment? It can't be good. The word could be used to describe a person, a jealous person who is a nationalist or a patriot or a zealot like Simon the Zealot was. Um, yeah, and we can have good jealousy, just you know, passionately committed to a cause, jealous over your spouse and their purity. Jealous over your children and their um, you know, walk with the Lord, that you want the best for them because you've lived long enough to see the terrible consequences of not doing that. You maybe have lived some of those consequences and you have that jealousy because of that. So that's, not, that's hard to understand for people on the other side. But in any case, uh, God also is an avenging God. He avenges and is furious. He will take vengeance on his adversaries, you know, poke the eye of God, and do you think he's just going to sit there and take it? No, that's not right. Vengeance belongs to God. Only he knows how to truly, righteously, purely apply justice. That's difficult for us to do. But it should, it should be something we strive for. You know, the, the model of, an, of a dispassionate uh, kind of unemotional judge is the one that you, I think, you would like to see in a courtroom. It's, uh, on the other hand, you know, you, it, you do appreciate when a judge gets a little bit excited about a case in the sense that, like, they're upset at unrighteousness, and you see that upsetness. That's good, but you can't get too much into that because you don't want to uh, color justice with emotion and make it look vindictive. It should be even-handed, evenly applied. God can do that. God is love is one side of his character, but he's also righteous and just, and that requires something more than mere love, and sometimes it requires vengeance. Imagine with me, please, people in the Middle East in recent years who lost their husbands and fathers to terrorists who cut off their heads with a knife. What punishment is suitable for people who do that to other human beings? God, is he avenges and he is furious with people who do that to his fellow, to his creations. And some things 
are so clear they call for justice. They're, they're so clear in that call for justice that we can't, we can't mistake them. They just are obviously justifiable. But God is also long-suffering. Look at verse 3. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power. Imagine if he was quick to anger and great in power. His quickness to anger could be used to quickly decimate his enemies before he, we could say, had a chance to stop and think. God obviously doesn't need to think, but we're sometimes, and we have power, if we're humans in a power, a place of power, we're quick to anger, and then that's a, that's a mess. That's a mess. He does not lose his cool, but is very patient. Um, judging from how long iniquity has reigned in this world, God is very, very patient, very patient. I wish I could be as patient as God. I wonder if you wish the same. Many of us are very impatient. That's a characteristic of our flesh, of our sinful nature. God is also righteous. Um, It says that he will not at all acquit the wicked. Acquit the wicked. Um, Somebody, a, a judge or a a governor or a police officer who turns a blind eye, looks the other way, what do we think of him? He becomes like an accomplice to the evil doing. Um, what about an, a, a police officer? I just heard of another one who was in the police force dealing drugs. Oh, doesn't it just deflate your, your, your hopes for the officers that you see on the streets and your, your viewpoint of some of them? Obviously not all of them, but it just makes you, it just puts that twinge of doubt like, okay, is this, is this an honest officer or is this a guy that's, you know, dirty? Um, God is not at all dirty. He's righteous. He does not acquit the wicked. And then it says that he is all-powerful. The Lord has his way in the whirlwind and in the storm. The clouds are the dust of his feet. I think it was just a few weeks ago, my dad had hay down on the field in the back, and he said there was a very large, do you remember this, guys? A very large whirly gig, we called it. The miniature tornado is, is how you could talk about it. If it, is, you know, the, 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 it could be a nice, sunny, clear day out, but you can get these whirlwinds out in the fields, and you see those, and it just, you know, he had the hay laid out there in rows, it just rearranged. That hey, it was a, it was big, you know. I've seen little ones, little versions of that. But so he had to go out and you know straighten it out again and get it ready to be bailed up. But you imagine imagine that only times a thousand, a hurricane-sized whirlwind or a tornado that's a mile wide and 250 mile an hour winds. God has His way in the whirlwind. The clouds are the dust of His feet. To Him, it's insignificant. This is a poetic expression that God is all-powerful, his power over nature. Uh, It talks about him being powerful over those who think they can endure his wrath. He rebukes the sea and makes it dry, dries up the rivers and all of that. The mountains quake, the hills melt, the earth heaves at his presence. Yes, the world and all who dwell in it. And then verse 6 says, who can stand before his indignation? If God kicks up the dust of the clouds with his feet, and walks through the whirlwind as if it's nothing. Do you think you're going to be able to stand his indignation? His wrath against unholiness? 
against unrighteousness. Nature stands in awe at the power of God. And we must recognize that God's power is far above ours. Well, that's it for today, my friends. Nahum, just an introduction and the kind of themes, some of the themes of the book. We have to finish that and briefly and then get into chapter 1 in a little more detail, but we'll hold that for the next time we have opportunity. Yes? Okay, a prayer request tonight. We got one by text message, it sounds like. This is Mike, isn't it? Yeah, his oral surgery. Oh, my. For a long time? Okay, so, yeah. When you don't do your regular dental work, then you have to do major dental work, I guess. That's the story there, okay? So, take heed, all you people afraid to go to the dentist. (laughs) All right, let's pray for that, too. Father, we pray that you will take the word tonight and and press it into our hearts. Help us to recognize the characteristics of that you share about yourself in the book of Nahum. Tonight we also want to pray for uh, Mike, who has this oral surgery, and uh, what a what a situation! I've had one of those in my life with the wisdom teeth, but uh, I know others have had much more extensive work, and it must be uncomfortable and. Real pain, but I pray that it will at least have the um, the benefit of correcting this long-standing problem, and that he would be able to, in a few weeks, comfortably eat again and enjoy good food. And Lord, on that note, I just want to thank you for allowing us to enjoy the bounty of your provision. We've had um, probably all of us today one or two meals. We might have had a snack. We have food at our fingertips. Um, just tasty, different morsels and snacks and quick things out of a bag or a box. And these are just basically delivered into our hand when we walk to the grocery or walk in the grocery store and pull things off the shelf and pay for them. Thank you for that, Lord. May it never be said that our people of Fellowship Bible Church forget to give thanks to God because we know that everything that we have comes from you. So we pray that we will be thankful of all people. And uh, thank you for this week. We pray for VBS. Give us strength each day. By the end of the week, many of us will be spent. I pray for myself that I'll have the time needed to prepare all the messages and do the normal things that must be done as well as this, and that we'll have good and willing help from all hands in the church. In Jesus' name, amen. We close out tonight with uh, a blessing, I trust, from God to you. May you uh, walk with him. And as the Levites were told in the Older Testament, as well as in the uh, book of Ezekiel, when the future comes, that uh, God would be their inheritance. May it be true, too, of you that God is your portion and your strength. Amen. Good night.